Well, we are over here in 2 Kings 23, finally concluding the reign of Josiah. And we see that they discovered, the last time we were together, he discovered the book of the law, didn't even know it was around. They found it and they read it and they said, oh, wow, we are in trouble. Brought it on back to the king and the king heard it and said, man, we are in trouble. And they repented immediately. Prophet was dispatched, sent over to them and said, uh, everything that you heard is going to happen. God is not going to relent from this. And despite that, Josiah still continued on the path of repentance and in restoring worship. Sometimes people will repent as long as there's something in it for them. And Josiah continued to go down this road even though God said, I will still bring this upon the land. Verse 1, Now the king sent them to gather all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem to him. As he looks to restore worship, he starts first off with the leadership, the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. And he brought them over to them. Verse 2, Then the king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah, and with him all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and the prophets, and all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which had been found in the house of the Lord. So first the messenger, the person who was over in the house, he, he found it. He brought it over to the king. Then the king... He read it. It was read to him. Now the king is going to read it to all the people. Then the king stood by a pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to follow the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of this, of this covenant that were written in the book. And all the people took a stand for the covenant. So he stood and he, he's setting the example here. I'm going to make a covenant before God that I am going to do all these things. And the people joined in. They followed the leadership that the king gave. And the king commanded Hilkiah, the high priest, the priest of the second order, and the doorkeepers to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the articles that were made for Baal, for Asherah, and for all the hosts of heaven. For Baal, for Asherah, and all the hosts of heaven. We've told you before, most of the time you see host of heaven in the word of God. It is about idolatrous worship. And he burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of Kidron, and carried their ashes to Bethel. Now Manasseh, when he repented, didn't burn the stuff. He just kind of put it in storage. That's what it says in the, in the Word. He didn't get rid of it. It was still there. So as soon as he was done with his repentance and he died and his son came up, Ammon, then he brought it all out. If you are going to get rid of something because God told you to get rid of it, putting it in the closet is not going to work. It will eventually be brought out. So he takes all this stuff and he burns it outside in the fields of Kidron. And he carried their ashes to Bethel. Then he removed the idolatrous priest whom the kings of Judah had ordained to burn incense on the high places in the cities of Judah and in the places all around Jerusalem. And those who burned incense to Baal, to the sun, to the moon, to the constellations, and to all the hosts of heaven. He brought out the wooden image from the house of the Lord to the brook Kidron, outside Jerusalem, burned it at the brook Kidron and ground it to ashes and threw its ashes on the graves of the common people. He's desecrating them. But in the house of the Lord, they had set up this wooden image of a idolatrous form of worship. And he tore down the ritual booths of the perverted persons that were in the house of the Lord where the woman wove hangings from the wooden image. Now, if you look this up in the King James, there's a lot of translations out there. This is the way the King James had translated. A lot of modern translations do not like the wording that the King James used. The Sodomites were the... I'm sorry, go back to... Is it one verse behind? Or is it the next verse before? After? Wow, uh, well, I don't see it in there. I just, I just read it in my King James Bible. Let's see if it goes off. Yeah, it was verse 7. Then he tore down the ritual booths of the perverted persons. How does that uh, translate verse 7? There, there's sodomites. Okay. I somehow just skipped over it. Sodomites is the word that is used for men on men sex. That's what it's used for. For gay sex. And they have a hard time with this with modern translations. And so they put things in here like the new... I love the New King James. But the New King James tried to soften this and put it in their perverted persons. All right, now you still know there's this perversion involved. There's a lot of translations, especially ones like the NIV, 
more modern ones even, will change this off to something that doesn't even resemble what the Bible says. Because we have a hard time with this. But this is what it's talking about. The forms of worship that Israel had brought in, some of them had female prostitutes and some had male. And so you would come in as a form of worship and you would be involved in either heterosexual sex or gay sex with someone who was not your spouse. That was part of the worship. That's what they brought in. Homosexuality is not something that God looks on and says, well, that's okay. It's not what he does. They are perverted persons. He removed the idolatrous priest. Um, I'm sorry, verse 7. Then he tore down the ritual booths and the perverted persons that were in the house of the Lord where the woman wove hangings for the, woman ima- for the wooden image. So among the other duties that these women had, one of the things was these, uh, these hangings. But he got rid of all that. He tore down the ritual booths of the uh, perverted persons and were in the house of the Lord. In the house of the Lord. And little booths set up for all this sort of stuff. And he brought all the priests from the cities of Judah and defiled the high places where the priests had burned incense. And he, when it says there he brought all the priests, what he's doing is he's taking all those priests that were involved in this type of activity and he brought them all over Jerusalem. We're going to watch you. We're not trusting you outside of our sight. We're going to watch you. And if you try and bring people into this type of things, I guess they would execute them or they had some kind of a threat over them anyway. They followed the high places where the priests had burned incense from Geba to Beersheba. Also, he broke down the high places at the gates, which were at the ent- entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city, which were to the left of the city gate. So he didn't just go in there and remove this. He burned things. He tore them down. He ground them into ashes. He removed the people. He put them under watch. Some he executed. He's getting rid of this stuff. And yet God says, I'm going to do this. Regardless of what you do, I am going to bring this judgment on the house of Judah. But he's unswayed. He knows that this is wrong stuff. He made a covenant before God. We are going to do what your word said. We are going to hold to it. And the word told them how to handle these situations, how to handle idolatrous situations, how to handle the type of worship that went on. What should you do? Get rid of it. Word of God even said, get rid of the perverted persons from amongst the land. And that's what he's doing. Verse 9, Nevertheless, the priests of the high places did not come up to the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem, but they ate unleavened bread among their brethren. They were not involved, even though they were Levites, they were not involved in the worship of the Lord. If they were involved in false worship, regardless of their birth, they would not be involved in the worship of the Lord. That's pretty strong. I don't care if you repent. I don't care if you say that that way was wrong. You can come over here to Jerusalem. You can partake of the unleavened bread. You can partake of the feast, but you will not be leading them. You will not be offering sacrifices. You will not be operating in the office of a priest. He's pretty strong, isn't he? And he defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no, no man may make his son or his daughter pass through the fire to Moloch. Moloch is still being worshipped here. Uh, Manasseh is the one who brought that one in. Horrible worship. Horrible worship. They say that uh, it got this name either from the drums that would be beating or um, from the fires that were burning. It just depends on which Hebrew word I think you take it from. But they said they would beat these drums while this worship was going on because of the cries of the babies being sacrificed. They needed to drown them out. And they drowned them out with the drums. Then he removed the the, the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun at the entrance to the house of the Lord by the chamber of Nathan, Melech, the officer who was in the court, and he burned the chariots of sun with fire. Now what this is, this is a Persian form of worship in which they would take the, what they did was they took these horses and they would ride them off into the sunset as a sacrifice to, the, to their God or as a form of worship. At the end of it, they would kill the horse. Sacrifice the horse. Now, they're not sure whether the Israelites did the sacrifice of the, of the horse or not. Uh, more than likely, I guess they would, but that's what they're, they're bringing in Persian. Uh, and if you, yeah, I don't know, we haven't done too much study because I think the Persians 
are just gross. I've done some studies on their, their rituals, on the things that, to me, they are just, I can't study it very long. They drive me crazy. If you've ever done any study of it, you'll see some of the, the grossness of that culture. Horrible stuff that they would, they would do in worship. And, and things. Been, I had a hard time studying it. And we've just kind of gone past it a lot of times in the end times classes and places where we would get into them because to me it is hard. And they would go and they would adapt some of the Persian uh, uh, practices and bring them on over. The altars that were on the roof, the upper chamber of Ahaz, which the kings of Judah had made, and the altars which Manasseh had made in the two courts of the house of the Lord, the king broke down and pulverized there and threw their dust into the brook Kidron. Now here's something interesting. This is an altar, uh, a chamber that Ahaz had made to worship pagan gods. It has survived from him until now. How many good kings did Judah have between Ahaz and Josiah? They had, they had a number of them, including Hezekiah. And we looked at the reform that Hezekiah did, how he reformed the people, and the people went and they tore down things and they destroyed things. Apparently not this. This survived. You see why God got mad? Even the good kings left some things behind. Josiah apparently is wiping it all out. He is getting rid of it. He's, he's basically saying, if you guys are going to worship idols after I'm gone, you are going to have to start from scratch. You will have nothing. So there were altars on the roof, the upper chamber of Ahaz, which the kings of Judah had made, and the altars which Manasseh had made in the two courts of the house of the Lord. In the courts of the house of the Lord, Manasseh had made them. Manasseh repented. Manasseh repented to God and came back to God. And yet these things survived. How do you do that? How do you repent before God and leave things in his house that shouldn't be there? The king broke down and pulverized there and threw their dust into the brook Kidron. So he didn't just throw it in the trash. He broke it. He pulverized it. It's not good enough that it's broken up. No, no, no. We need to see dust. And a dust so fine that we're going to throw it into the brook and the brook is going to wash it away. You will never find even the dust, even the pieces. It will be gone. Then the king defiled the high places that were east of Jerusalem, which were on the south of the Mount of Corruption. Here's a great name. Which Solomon, king of Israel, had built for Ashtorah, the abomination of the Sidonians, for Kamosh, the abomination of the Moabites, and for Milcom, the abomination of the people of Ammon. So apparently, those things still survived. Things that Solomon had built. But Josiah took care of them. Took him out. And he broke in pieces the sacred pillars and cut down the wooden images. And he went out and he found bones. I don't know whose bones they are. Who's bones? We don't care whose bones they are. Get those bones. Bring them on over here. We're going to desecrate this high place. And he broke in pieces the sacred pillars. Took all the wooden images. Cut them down. Filled their places with the bones of men. Moreover, the altar that was at Bethel. And the high place which drew... Jeroboam, the son of Nabot, who made Israel's sin, had made both that altar and the high place he broke down, and he burned the high place and crushed it to powder and burned the wooden image. Now remember the prophet who came by and said on a, a, a king, Josiah by name, will break down this altar and the judgment he, he would bring on that. That, uh, that prophet, who's, we don't have his name, we just had a prophet from Judah who came up to uh, Israel in the north, the northern kingdom, to Bethel. This is not a territory controlled by the area of the south. And he said, Josiah, a king from the south, king of David, is going to come up here and he's going to destroy this place. And Jeroboam's fear was that the people of Israel will turn back to the house of David and they will kill me and my sons. And when he heard that prophecy, he's probably just saying, see, I knew it. And that's not at all what happened. Because what happened right now is that Israel is gone. 
They have been judged because of their sin that Jeroboam and others led them into. And so Josiah came up and he took that altar out because that altar was a problem for his people. And he's not going to have that. So he took this. Now, if you look up Dakes, Dakes will tell you that this was 348 years till it came, came to pass from the time it was prophesied until the day that Josiah fulfilled. 348 years and God calls the person by name. Where did we leave off? 15? So we're at 16? Right, let's go over it. Moreover, the altar that was at Bethel and the high place which Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin, had made both that altar and the high place. He broke down. He burned the high place and crushed it to powder, burned the wooden image, as Josiah turned, he saw the tombs that were on, there on the mountain. And he sent and took the bones out of the tombs and burned them on the altar and defiled it according to the word of the Lord, which the man of God proclaimed, who proclaimed these words. Then he said, What gravestone is this that I see? So the men of the city told him, It is the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah and proclaimed these things which you have done against the altar of Bethel. Now this, this verse, verse puzzles me. How is it that the children of Israel are ignorant of the laws of God, but familiar with this story? Maybe they familiarized themselves with the story after they became familiar with the law, but it just seems odd that you would know the story, but not the law. And he said, Josiah said, let him alone, let no one move his bones, so that let his bones alone with the bones of the prophet who came from Samaria. Now Josiah also took away all the shrines of the high places that were in the cities of Samaria, which the kings of Israel had made to provoke the Lord to anger. And he did to them according to all the deeds he had done in Bethel. This phrase is used often in the, in the word of God. Which the kings of Israel had made to provoke the Lord to anger. Do you think, most people are thinking, what can we do to get God mad today? Hmm... You know what? If we build this altar, he's probably going to be really upset at that. Let's go ahead and do this. Well, most of them, the reason that they're doing it is they believe these other gods are either stronger or more in existence than God is. But you look at the people today. I mean, they get, the people in the news, politicians, people that are out there, the things that they say against God. You have to wonder, are you, are you really trying to get God mad? You hear politicians today who give more reverence to Islam than Christianity. Now, maybe some from some other countries, that's fine. But our country is founded on the God of Jehovah, the God of the Bible. I, just, I hear these people, they talk so reverently of Islam, of other religions, and put Christianity down. It just, it, it amazes me. Even when we had this thing in Orlando and other places, the villains are always, they're always thinking the wrong people. The Christians, the people on the other side of the aisle from what they're on, the people who, who are conservative, the people who are uh, whatever it is, they, just, they go after the wrong, they're, they're, the people. they're not the people. They're not the people. Ah, I, guess, I don't know if it gets you mad, but it gets me mad. How mad do you think God gets when people see folks acting like this and, and look to protect it and attack his people and attack his precepts. I, I don't know, but I don't want to be on their side. Because this is how God, I'm sure that they did not build these pillars, build these altars, and build these gods thinking, how can we get God mad? They're doing it because they want to. But this is, not how, this is not how God looks at it. God looks at it that they did this to get me mad. They don't care what, they, what they're saying. God's looking at it this way. They did this to get me mad. And they did. I'm mad. <laughs> but the people who did it wanted to satisfy their flesh, wanted to worship a God of their choosing. Maybe they liked some of the practices, some of the ways that they would go about it. But that's how God looked at it. They did it to get me mad. And now I'm mad. Verse uh, 20. And he executed all the priests of the high places who were there on the altars and burned men's bones on them. And he returned to Jerusalem. So he goes only up to Bethel. These ones it says he executed. He didn't bring them back. We're not bringing you all back. You are involved in a corrupt form 
of worship. And we're not bringing you back. In fact, we're leaving you here. We're going to kill you. And we're going to burn your bones right here. And then he comes back to Jerusalem. So all these things are removed, taken care of. I put this in your outline for you. It seems that most times true worship is finally restored. What is false is first removed. You go through the Bible and you see people who have brought in the true worship. What is false is first removed. There's a lot of people who have false ideas about God, false ways of worshiping Him. And if they are not willing to get rid of those false ways, true worship will not be restored because their false ideas are holding them back. How many people? Well, I don't think God. Well, I don't believe God. They have false ideas about God. They've got to get rid of those things because that's going to hold them back. Well, I don't think God will send anyone to hell. Well, that's going to hold you back in true worship. Because let me tell you what, God will. God has said so, and God is mad with some people. He's going to take them out. But remember that phrase that God said, the kings of Israel, they did this to make me mad. And I am going to bring this judgment on the house of Judah, just like I brought it on the house of Israel. I'm going to bring this judgment on the house of Judah. I don't care how much you repent. I don't care how much you cry. I'm going to do it. So all this stuff is taken out. Then the king commanded all the people saying, Keep the Passover to the Lord your God as it is written in this book of the covenant. Such a Passover surely had never been held since the days of the judges who judged Israel. Not in the days of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah. That would include David, wouldn't it? That would include Solomon, wouldn't it? Solomon had a lot of money. Solomon did a lot of big things. When he did a feast, he did it big. Sometimes we saw that they came back and they, uh, under Hezekiah, they had such a good time doing the feast, they did it for an extra week. <laughs> and yet still it says, no one since the days of the judges has ever done a Passover feast like this one. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was held before the Lord in Jerusalem. Moreover, Josiah put away those who consulted mediums and spiritists and household gods and idols, all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, that he might perform the words of the law, which were written in the book of that Hilkiah, the priest found in the house of the Lord. We didn't just go after the mediums, the spiritists, the household gods, things like that. We went after the people who consulted them. If you consulted mediums and spiritualists, hey, we're putting you away. We are taking you out. You will not be continuing that practice here anymore. Verse 25. Now before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses. Nor after him did any arise like him. Now that does not mean he was a greater king than David. Because David did not have to turn his heart back to the Lord because his heart always was for the Lord. And he took on a people who had not turned their back on the Lord. The king had. But the people as a whole had not. But as far as kings who inherited an evil group of folks, no one turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his might. Like Josiah. No one. No one before him. Certainly no one after him. He's the last good king. He is it. There are no more good kings. So no one even came close. No one even gave him a run for his money. Is it. Verse 26. Nevertheless, the Lord did not turn from the fierceness of his great wrath with which his anger was aroused against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. Of all the kings to mention, Manasseh is the one. He didn't just say all the kings before him. He said, Manasseh. The most evil of all the kings, the one who brought in the most abominable idolatrous practices, set up things in the house of the Lord. Even though he repented, singled him out. And the Lord said, I will also remove Judah from my sight as I have removed Israel and will cast off this city, Jerusalem, which I have chosen in the house of which I have said, my name shall be there. So he does not turn from the fierceness of his wrath. Does this mean that the Lord will hold the sons responsible for the sins of the father? Now just consider this. Manasseh is one of the fathers, right? The people who followed after Manasseh are 
some of the fathers. Josiah is one of the sons. Josiah has not uh, embraced any of these practices and has led Israel to get rid of everything. And God says, I'm still bringing a judgment down on you. So, is God going against his word? Of course, we know he's not, but would it not seem like that? Exodus 34, verse 7. Look at some of the promises that are in the word. Keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, we've talked to you about this, this verse before. This is not a generation curse verse like a lot of people teach it. This is not saying that when the father sinned, that the curse of that we brought upon this, the first, second, third, and fourth generations. It's not saying that at all. What it's saying is God will hold back judgment for what they did even to the third and fourth generation. What's he looking for? Repentance. And if they repent, he won't bring it upon them. If they don't repent, then they are engaging in the same sin. And therefore, the judgment that comes upon them is the sin that they did. Not the sin their fathers did. But God will wait. It's a mercy verse. It's not a, a judgment verse. Numbers 14, verse 18. The Lord is long-suffering and abundant in mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. It's almost verbatim what the other verse is. It's in Exodus. It's in Numbers. Deuteronomy 5, verse 9. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. <coughs> Here it is again. Deuteronomy 24, 1. Uh, I copied the wrong one on that one. All right. Somewhere in Deuteronomy 24, it's going to say about the same thing. <laughs> Ezekiel eighteen nineteen. <laughs> Yet you say, why should the son not bear the guilt, guilt of the father? Because the son has done what is lawful and right and has kept all my statutes and observed them. He shall surely live. The soul who, who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. So, Look at all these verses. It's repeated quite often. It's not an accident that it's in there. Is God right in visiting the sin of Manasseh and the others upon Josiah and the people? If he does that, can you see that there's a problem here? Execution is a little bit different from what it seems that it, it is promised. Now, look at if we go back just in your minds. We're not going to go back there uh, literally here, but if we go back to the prophet who came over to Josiah, he said, what you heard is going to happen. I will bring judgment upon the house of Judah, just as I brought judgment upon Jerusalem. But it will not happen in your day. Why? Because he repented. Because he turned his heart back to God. He said, I'm not going to do it. Because you're not guilty of the things that your fathers had done. So I'm not going to do it in your day. But what happened after Josiah died? They went right back to their pagan practices and their idolatrous worship. And they did the same things that God would bring judgment upon them for. Now God said, I'll wait for judgment of the third and fourth generation. He didn't have to wait long for this one. <laughs> he didn't have to wait that long, third or fourth generation. But we'll count up how many generations actually came after, after this. But the, the next son followed in the way of evil. The next son followed in the way of evil. The next son followed in the way of evil. And judgment came upon the house of Judah. If Josiah's son had followed after God the same way Josiah had, and if his son had followed after God the same way that Josiah had, and if his son had followed after God the same way that Josiah had, and we read all those verses correctly, God would have relented of his judgment. But they didn't do that. They didn't last one generation. And they went right back into the sin. And God knew this about them. They're going to follow right back into the sin. This is just a little blip on the radar. After this, they're going to go right after the sin. And the judgment's coming. So God just spoke on what he knew would happen. Just as he knew Josiah was going to come 
and do this 348 years before it happened, he also knew that the children of Israel were going to go back to their idols as soon as Josiah died. So here's the question. If God wants to bring this judgment on, because everything we read so far, it seems like God is looking forward to bringing judgment upon the house of Judah as he brought judgment upon Israel. Doesn't it seem that way? I'm going to do it. It's coming. I'm bringing it. I'm tired of you guys. I'm tired of all your idolatry. I'm tired of you forsaking me. I'm tired of you leaving me. I am bringing judgment upon this house. Doesn't it sound like God is kind of looking forward to it? All right. What's standing in God's way? Josiah. So if you're God and you want to bring judgment on the house of Israel or Judah, and Josiah is doing all this stuff with repentance and doing a good job of it, what do you got to do? We've got to get Josiah out of the way, right? <laughs> Josiah is standing in my way of bringing judgment upon the house of Judah. <clears throat> no, that's not our God. That's not our God. That's not what he does. But it would seem that way because Josiah, all we know about Josiah's reign is that he didn't know anything about God, learned about him, and then taught the people of Israel about God. Cleaned up the whole place, had a great Passover feast, the greatest one ever in Israel's history, apparently. And then after that, he dies prematurely, early. I mean, why not just let him live a, long, a regular life? Reign for, you know, 30, 40 years? Nope. Verse, we're going to go over to Second Chronicles because we get a lot more detail on this. If you go over to Kings and you look at it, you get two verses on this, which just says that uh, he had war with Pharaoh Necho of uh, Egypt, and uh, he died. So we want a little bit more detail on it than that. So go over to Second Chronicles chapter 35, verse 20. After all this, when Josiah had prepared the temple, Necho, king of Egypt, came up to fight against Carchemish by the Euphrates. And Josiah went out against him. But he sent messengers to him saying, What have I to do with you, king of Judah? I have not come against you this day, but against the house with which I have war. For God commanded me to make haste. Refrain from meddling with God who was with me, lest he destroy you. Isn't this interesting that God would call upon Egypt to do something? Because we got a king, Carchemish, the Syrians, who are enemies of Judah. I don't know. If, if it'd be, uh, Trying to bring this into modern terms. Think back into the Cold War, you know, when everybody was afraid of nuclear bombs being dropped out of the sky, and we all learned how getting under your desk <laughs> would preserve you in a nuclear attack. Yeah. We felt real good about that, didn't we? But if someone came along and they said, we are going to go after the Soviet Union and we are going to destroy them. And we have this, this battle going on. Would, what would happen with the United States? The United States says, no, 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 we don't want you to do that. We, we like the Soviet Union. Uh, we're going to stop you. I don't think we would do that. I think that we would kind of let them go. What if in World War II, the Japanese decided they didn't like the Germans anymore and they decided to go after them? And we said, no, hold on a minute. We do not want you to go after the Germans. We're going to stop you if you... If you no, that, that wouldn't happen either, would it? So why is it that this guy who has been so wise does such a foolish thing? Why get in the way of a battle that has nothing to do with you? Somehow he gets it in his mind. No, 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 he's coming over here. He's going to try and do something. I know it. He's going, to try and do, he's going to try and take us over, conquer some of our cities, take some of our stuff. He's going to try and do something. I just know it. So he decides to go out to battle with them. Well, if you're afraid that maybe he might come out to battle with you, why would you go out to battle with him? That's what he did. So he gets a warning. Pharaoh doesn't just go over there and conquer them, take them over. He, he warns them. He says, look, I'm not here to deal with you. I don't want to fight you. I just want to go. I got a mission from God. God spoke to me. And this is what God told me to do. He told me I'm supposed to go over here. He even gave him the mission. Gave him the mission. Said I'm supposed to go over here and fight against Carchemish. 
You don't like him either. He's not doing you any favors. I'm going to go over there. I'm going to get him. I'm going to conquer him. I have not come against you this day, but against the house of which I have war. For God commanded me to make haste. Refrain from meddling with God, who was with me, lest he destroy you. So God says, you need to hurry up and you need to get over there. Whatever it was, he needed to hurry up for. Josiah is now slowing him down. Hmm. Nevertheless, Josiah would not turn his face from him, but disguised himself so they might fight with him and did not heed the words of Necho from the mouth of God. Now there, the word says that it's from the mouth of God. So we might have thought maybe earlier, Necho thought he heard from God or maybe he heard from one of his gods. But according to this part of the narrative, it says that the words of Necho came from the mouth of God. So he disguised himself. This way he won't know that I'm the king. I'm going to go out there and fight him. So he came to fight in the valley of Megiddo. And the archers shot King Josiah. And the king said to his servants, Take me away, for I am severely wounded. You know, the archers, they don't necessarily shoot directly at you. They shoot up in the air. And those arrows just kind of come down. And uh, they can pierce armor that way. They pierce his armor. Didn't kill him, but he was wounded. His servants therefore took him out of that chariot and put him in the second chariot that he had, and they brought him to Jerusalem. So he died and was buried in one of the tombs of his father, and all Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. This is not God taking him out. This is not God saying, you were in my way, I need to get rid of you. This is Josiah putting himself in a battle he didn't need to be in. And when he is given a directive, no, I'm not taking that. I'm not backing down. I, I called you out and I'm going to stay here until we fight. <clears throat> and fought with him. Where do we put that in your outline? God did not get Josiah out of the way so he could execute judgment. Josiah put himself in danger and out of the protection from God. Josiah had protection from God. And Necho was not going to touch him. In fact, God gave orders Go over here. Don't touch anybody else. Go on over here. And he came on out. I have no battle with you. And apparently he could take him out if he wanted to. Wasn't going to do it. I have no battle with you. Leave me alone. I'm going over here to do what God told me to do. And he didn't do it. <clears throat> and he put himself in danger. And not only is he in danger, he's out of the protection of God. Because he's not listening to God. He's listening to himself. He's listening to other voices. He's not listening to God's voice. If God's voice told Necho, go over here and take on Chemish, Carchemish, and Josiah rises up, don't you think the voice of God would rise up inside Josiah and say, Josiah, back down. Don't be doing this. But see, some Christians have a hard time with the backing down part. No, I am the righteousness of God in Christ. I have all authority. I'm not backing down. And because they don't back down, they've been in some situations and gotten shot, gotten stabbed, gotten killed. Because they won't back down. Because they've inserted themselves into something that they shouldn't be inserted into. Sometimes, folks, our own pride keeps us from backing down and puts us in a dangerous place without the protection from God. God does not need to take Josiah out. God is perfectly willing to wait to execute judgment. But Josiah puts himself in a bad place. Jeremiah also lamented for Josiah. Well, if you're Jeremiah, <laughs> you got to know, oh man, this is it. Things are, things are good right now. Things are good. Now they're about to get a whole lot worse. He knows this. So he lamented for Josiah. Oh man, why did he have to go this, this way? I wonder, we'll have to wait until we get to heaven on this, but I wonder... Did Jeremiah approach Josiah on this? Did he give him a word about this and say, hey, don't go. Leave him alone. And to this day, all the singing men and the singing women speak of Josiah in their lamentations. They made it a custom in Israel, and indeed they are written in the laments. Very interesting how songs are sung for someone who made them give up their idols and their pagan worship practices. Isn't that something? Josiah comes in, he takes away all their fun. <laughs> takes away all their idols. Makes them worship God, him alone. 
And they sang songs to lament his death. I just thought that's kind of odd. Now the rest of the acts of Josiah and his goodness, according to what was written in the law of the Lord, and his deeds from first to last, indeed they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. So not a whole lot is really known about his life. We know how it started. We know how he turned to the Lord. We know how he had a great feast. And then we know how he died. We don't know a whole lot in between. But do you think all that goodwill in his life would carry him over when he was in danger? Sometimes Christians think this too. How can this bad thing happen to me when I have served the Lord so faithfully? How can this happen to me when I've done and been so zealous for the things of God? How can this happen to me? And yet it did. See, somehow we have an expectation that all of our good things that we've done should help shield us when we do some bad things. <laughs> and the life of Josiah will show you this right here. You can have all kinds of good things going on and you disobey the voice of God and put yourself in, in a dangerous situation. It's not God that takes you out. But you have put yourself in a place for the enemy to take you out. And we're going to find out that it's, it's not said in this chapter. Find it out later on. It's not just that Josiah dies, but Necho takes over. They're no longer free. The nation has lost their freedom because of Josiah's actions here. Because he's going to come back after he defeats Carchemish and he's going to put the next king in place. He leaves it for now. He goes on over here. Take care of what God told him to do. Then he comes back. And he says, I just defeated you all in battle. So I get to decide how your country is going to be run for now. And they fall under the reign of Egypt. Never should have. Never should have. When bad things happen, it's generally because we did not listen to the voice of God. And God gave us a warning. How many times have you heard, Christian, well, I felt that the Lord told me, blah, 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 and I didn't listen. Well, if you felt the Lord told you to do it, why didn't you do it? See, most of the time it's because I heard that and either I didn't want to do it or I wasn't quite sure if God had said it. But somehow afterwards, now I'm sure that God said it and I just didn't do it. The whole idea, folks, is to be sure what God says when God says it and do it. If we do what God says to do when God says to do it, we don't get in as much trouble. Mm-hmm. If God says, fix that thing, get that thing checked, and we don't do it. So I'll just give you an example. Say God says, hey, that heater of yours, get it serviced, get it checked. And we don't do it. And a really cold day happens in the winter. And our heater stops, and we're in the cold. God, why did you let this happen? <laughs> Told you. Get it, or you hear, you up here afterwards. I know I, I felt God was telling me to get that heater checked a month ago, and I didn't do it. I didn't do it. So we spent the night in the cold. <laughs> no, listen, listen. Brother Hagen used to, he told us this over and over and over and over, instantly. Obey the voice of your spirit. Because it's his spirit speaking to your spirit. He told us, instantly obey. Don't don't wait. Don't try and figure it out. If God says, do this, then do it. See, what we got to do is make sure we know how to hear the voice of God. We got Christians, been Christians 10 years, 20 years, 25 years, 30 years, still saying, well, I'm just not sure if that's God. Well, folks, you better get sure. Because as you see in this situation and some others in the Word of God, it's a, it's a case of life and death. The enemy wants to take you out. The enemy enjoys bringing Judah into idolatry, into sin. The enemy enjoys putting Judah in a place where God will judge them. Who's standing in the way? That Josiah character. We gotta get we gotta get rid of him. If we get rid of Josiah, Israel will go back to serving idols, and God will judge these people and take them out. Yeah, we need to get rid of Josiah. How can we get rid of Josiah? 
And I don't know how many situations came up in Josiah's life that maybe he said no to. But once again, the voice came. Don't trust that Pharaoh. You have the ability. God will help you. Go out and battle. You may not be as strong as him, but God will help you. Trust God. Say you're some man of faith and power. Trust God. Get out there and fight him. Don't let him just come over here and do whatever he wants to do. Are you going to believe him that he says that God called him to do this? And the enemy stirs up Josiah. And Josiah won't be deterred. And the enemy stands back there and says, we did it. We got him right there. Now all we got to do is help those arrows find their target. Because we don't care about the rest. All we care about is getting rid of Josiah. If we get rid of Josiah, this country will go down to the way of idolatry and God will judge them. It's not God who's out after Josiah. It's the enemy. Because he was keeping Israel, Judah, from being judged. And so that voice came up and he didn't discern it as being a wrong voice. And he put himself in danger. And he died. How important is it that we know the voice of God? It's huge. And the more we become a target for the enemy, the more important it is that we hear. Look at the life of Jesus. He said, no man takes my life. I lay it down. How many times did people try and take his life? Nope, can't do it. He listened to the voice of God. He stayed out of places of danger. He went in and did what God said to do. Went to the places where God said to go. And men did not take his life. But here we have that Josiah's life was taken. Put in your outline this. God does not take good people out of the way to execute his judgments. But good people can get in the way of danger and out of the protection of God's wings. God would have you under his wings and protected. The enemy would try and pull you out. And Josiah was pulled out because he listened to a wrong voice. A voice that said, don't trust that king. He means no good for you. And he felt threatened. And yet God said nothing. And I'm sure, we have to wait, as I said, to get to heaven, but I'm sure that there were prophets that were around and they said, Josiah, don't do this. Don't go out against Pharaoh and Josiah went back down he kept on going there are some Christians who have been in a bad situation and just wouldn't back down they faced anger they faced hate and they said no I don't have to back down to this they died in a fight died in a shootout because they wouldn't back down just because you were the son of the king daughter of a king does not mean that you have to take on every battle. You need to listen to the voice of your spirit. Father, what should I do here? God may say, stand down. God may say, rise up. You've got to listen to the voice of your spirit. It is a matter of life and death. And the more prominent you become in his kingdom, the bigger target you are. You need to learn how to hear what God is saying. How are we doing on listening to the voice of God? Josiah did a great job listening to the voice of God, following his commands, making a covenant, leading the people in true worship. He missed it this one time, and he died. Not what God wanted. It's not what God desired. It's what the enemy desired. And the enemy was able to accomplish it in the life of a man that several times comparison is made that there is no king before him or after him who turned his heart wholeheartedly with all his might to the Lord. And yet he fell to pride, fell to following the wrong voices, didn't listen to the voice of God. The great reformer Josiah died because he got in danger and out of God's protection. Being a Christian is serious. Now, he's in heaven. There's no doubt he's in heaven. 
He may have missed it on this one, but he got up to heaven and says, Josiah, you got here a little earlier than we wanted you to, but you're welcome. You are welcome here. Glad to have you. Glad for all the things that you're able to do in the, in the country and the way that you turned things around. You, it was supposed to be a little bit later that you were supposed to be here. That's all right. You're here now. Come on in. I'm sure he was welcomed very well. But he still had a job to do, and he didn't accomplish the rest of what he was supposed to do. He couldn't say like Paul said, my race is done. I finished my race. I can go on. His was not done yet. But he went on. I wonder how this affected his son. His son grew up under the reforms of Josiah. He grew up under seeing all that had done. Maybe his heart was following after God. And then when his father was taken so suddenly, did that turn his heart against God? God, why did you take my father? Why did he have to die? And did the enemy come in and sow something and say, God's not going to help you. Go back to the idols. Go back to the other things. Life was better then. And maybe it affected his son in a negative way. If Josiah had finished out his years and handed the rain off, would it have been different? I don't know. I wonder. But if you were Josiah's son and your father was, a, was taken this way, would it have a negative effect on you? Would you have questions for God? Would you have questions that the enemy would have sown and the enemy would have answered? And would you have gone in the wrong direction? Don't know. We don't know anything about his son, how he lived up until then, whether he turned. All we know is <clears throat> when he took the throne, he didn't last long, and he was called evil. But we'll save that for the next time. <laughs> We're actually going to take on a couple of kings because there was not a whole lot told us about any of them. And we may just take it right on down to the, to the end when they go into captivity with Babylon. So we'll, uh, we'll check that out next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you do speak to us, that you help us to avoid traps that the enemy has set up, places where the enemy wants to kill us, to bring us into things that we shouldn't be into. You alert us. You'll speak to us. You help us. But help us, Father, not to become hard to that voice. Help us not to be falling into a challenge. Well, I just want to back down from this. If we're wrong, we need to say, I was wrong. And repent and go back. Josiah didn't do that. And other Christians have done the same. And they put themselves in a dangerous situation. And the enemy was able to get in. But you had nothing to do with it. Many times you're blamed for things that you had nothing to do with. Help us, Father, not to be among those who blame you for things you didn't do and get angry at you for things that we have done ourselves. We need to learn to hear your voice and to pursue the things that you tell us to pursue. I thank you that you speak to us always. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.